My name is Malcolm Duncan. I lead the church here at Dundonald, and I want to thank you for taking the time online or with us uh, for being here this morning. I have to start with a slight confession for those of you that know um, that every Sunday morning at 8.15 uh, or 8.20 or sometimes 8.30, um, I do a live teaching session on Facebook, and there are several thousand people that follow it every week. But I, I wasn't there this morning, and um, I explained on uh, Facebook that I wasn't able to be there for a glitch. The glitch was at a quarter past eight, I let our two golden retrievers out into the garden. They dug a, he- a hole under the fence, and I was running up and down the streets of Newton Ards in my pajamas. <laughs> so um, eventually, after an hour, um, my family, who were all running up and down the streets in our pajamas, uh, found the dogs, and they are safe and well. So I will fix that, um, by the absence of that teaching a little later on. So I'm very sorry, but blame it on Woody and Buzz. <laughs> this morning, um, I want to begin a new series with our church family and those of you joining online uh, that will take us through to the beginning of June. Uh, we will return to the book of Acts later in the year or early next year. But I want to explore uh, one story, one, one book from the Old Testament with you, which I think is profoundly important and has a, a powerful message for all of us if we will simply listen to it. Would you please find, and it may take some time, the book of Habakkuk, or as Canadians and Americans call it, Habakkuk. Um, if you find Nahum, It's just after him, but that might not help. I would suggest use the index because it's one of those books that moves every time you look for it. So if you don't know where it is, don't be anxious or embarrassed about that. Um, Just uh, find the index of your Bible and uh, find the book of Habakkuk. Lovely to hear pages turning. Such an encouragement. Bring your Bible with you in a notepad or uh, something that you can take notes on to listen, just like Jules has this morning. I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 1. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore judgment comes forth perverted. Look at the nations and see, be astonished, be astounded for a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Dread and fearsome are they. Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Their horsemen come from far away. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. With faces pressing forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and of rulers they make sport. They laugh at every fortress and heap up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind. They transgress, they, they transgress and become guilty. 
Their own might is their God. Are you not from of old, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. O Lord, you have marked them for judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The enemy brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his sand, so he rejoices and exults. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his sand, for by them his portion is lavish and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as shale, like death. They never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect all peoples as their own. Shall not everyone taunt such people and with mocking riddles say about them, alas, for you who heap up what is not your own, how long will you load yourselves with goods taken in pledge? Will you not your own creditors suddenly rise and those who make you tremble wake up? Then you will be booty for them because you have plundered many nations. All that survive of the people shall plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence of the earth to cities and all who live in them. Alas for you who get evil gain for your house, setting your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed and found a city on iniquity. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor only to feed the flames and nations weary themselves for nothing, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Go to chapter three, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. What does a prophet like Habakkuk have to say to people in Northern Ireland and in Europe? Can I hear a phone talking or something? Uh, in Northern Ireland or in Europe in the 21st century or around the world? Why explore this book today and what might it say to us? I think it has a great deal to say. I think it's an important message that can bring hope and courage and comfort to all of us if we will simply let it. The title for this series is From Lament to Trust, A Journey of Faith. And that might help you to understand why I think 
it is important that we explore this book together. From Lament to Trust, A Journey of Faith. Not much is known about Habakkuk, other than the fact that he was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. And that means that he almost certainly was ministering or prophesying at a specific time in the history of the people of Israel and Judah, particularly the southern kingdom, which is where he is from. Um, either between 640 and 609 BC, when uh, the king that was, um, that was there was Josiah, or perhaps between 609 and, uh, or 609, 608 and 598, when the king was Jehoiakim. Now, why does that matter? It matters because that was a particularly difficult and turbulent and uncertain time for the people of Judah. Around Habakkuk and Jeremiah, something was happening. The boots of the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire were coming closer and closer and closer to the southern kingdom of Judah, the two tribes that remained after the 10 tribes of the north had been taken into captivity um, about 100 years earlier in 722 BC. And this little uh, rump of the uh, kingdom of Israel, Benjamin and Judah, had seen 10 tribes taken into captivity by a huge superpower, Assyria, 130 or 140 years later. And they had this perspective on it. It'll never happen to us. We'll never face uncertainty like that. Uh, God will never abandon us. He might have abandoned them, but he abandoned them because they were godless. We're godly. And the rising noise of the Babylonian boots on the ground was getting closer and closer and closer to them, and they didn't see it. They always assumed that it wouldn't happen. They couldn't see a way in which they would be allowed to be taken away from their homeland. Yet in 607, 597 and 585, in three um, great groups, the Babylonian empire under the leadership of a king called Nebuchadnezzar came and took the southern kingdom of Israel away from the land that we now call Israel, which God gave to them and has never taken back from them and brought them into what we now call modern-day Iran and Iraq, Babylon. And they couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't understand what was happening around them. They saw one swathe of people go, then they saw another swathe of people go, and then they saw a third swathe of people go, and they were left scratching their heads trying to work out how this could have happened. Their whole society seemed to be under threat. Their whole identity seemed to be under threat. Habakkuk spoke to them about that. In fact, he didn't speak to them. There is one mention of him, by the way, in a series of books called the Apocrypha. Um, It's probably legendary rather than historical. In a book called Baal and the Dragon, um, Habakkuk is described as a man who helps Daniel when he is in the lion's den. And uh, the legend was that God used him to support Daniel. There's no evidence for that at all, but it, it is the only other mention of him really within the context of, of uh, that literature from that era. What we do know about him is that he had a problem with what was happening around him. Because the book of Habakkuk is a set of complaints, cries, questions to God and God's answers. There isn't a single message in it from Habakkuk to the people of Israel. Every other prophet in the Old Testament announces something to the people. 
The closest you get to something similar is Jonah, who is called by God to go to a city called Nineveh, and he doesn't want to. So he has an argument with God about going to Nineveh, and God says, well, you're going anyway. That's an abbreviated version. And Jonah says, I'm not happy about that. And God says, well, whether you're happy or not, you're doing it. And it's a complaint and an argument between Jonah and God. But Habakkuk doesn't contain a single prophecy to the people of Israel. It is a complaint by a godly man about why the wicked prosper. It is a heartfelt cry to God that says, where are you when everything goes wrong? How can it be right that I see this stuff happening around me and you haven't intervened? Why have you not defended me? Why don't you come? And God answers him. Chapter one is a, is a complaint and God answers. Then chapter, halfway through chapter one, there's another complaint and God answers again. Then in chapter two, Habakkuk begins to make sense of what God is saying until he gets to the place in chapter three where he is able to offer up a prayer of trust and worship and adoration to Almighty God. What's interesting though is that what we're not seeing in Habakkuk chapter one, two, and three is um, a journal. We're not seeing a private letter that is somehow leaked. This is a document that contains one man's cry to God about what's happening in his nation and in his world that God crafts um, through um, inspiration so that his people can see that when they ask questions, he has answers, even if they don't like the answers. You're invited into a lament. You're invited into a cry. You're invited into this profoundly important question of God. Why is life as it is? And why do you seem to do so little about it when we need you to? That's why I think over the next few weeks, it's profoundly important for us to think about this to ask ourselves, how do we wrestle with God? What questions do we ask of him? Habakkuk is worried about wickedness and strife and oppression, which were taking over Judah. And he was worried and angry that God didn't seem to do anything. God tells him in Habakkuk chapter one, verse six, that he will do something. Listen to the verse again. He says, when, when, when Habakkuk has cried out to God, why are you, is this happening? God says in verse six, um, I am rising the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not on their own. So when Habakkuk says to God, why are they getting away with this in Judah, these wicked and perverse people that are doing wrong? Why aren't you doing something? God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to send the Babylonians to overcome you. And Habakkuk really resents that answer. So he replies and says, well, how can that be right? We'll go into this in more detail in the weeks that lie ahead. Habakkuk replies and says, they're more wicked than we are. Why are you using people that are more wicked than we are to punish us? So having said, why aren't you doing anything? God says, I'm doing something. And Habakkuk says, well, you're doing the wrong thing. None of us have ever had this discussion with God, I'm sure. And God says, I am, I am going to deal with it. And, and Habakkuk says, well, don't deal with it with them because they're worse than us. And God says, you're missing the point. I'm also then going to deal with them. 
Nobody's going to get away with their behavior. I'm going to deal with it. You're going to have to learn to trust me. And Habakkuk goes through a journey where he learns to trust with God. He wants to know from God how he can look on evil, how he can use an evil nation to execute judgment. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, that's exactly what he says to God. Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. O Lord, you have marked them for judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? This isn't the right way to deal with it, God. You should deal with it according to my plan. And God is clear with him. But Habakkuk comes to a place where he can trust God. He comes to a place where he understands that he doesn't understand, but he can't trust. The powerful, beautiful, global, eternal promise of God to this man, which is relayed to Israel, and you and I need to hold on to if we're followers of Jesus. One of the most significant verses to hold on to in times of storm and uncertainty in a nation and in a church and in the world is this. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 that the glory of the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. If you think it's not okay, it's not, it's not sorted, it's not all right, it's because it's not the end. God says to Habakkuk amidst all of his questions, nothing is going to left, be left unsorted, Habakkuk. One day, the knowledge of my glory will cover the whole earth just as the waters cover the oceans. And Habakkuk's position begins to change. He begins to thank God. He begins to express his worship to God. He begins to express his trust to God. And he gets to this profoundly moving section right at the end of his letter. After having explained who God is and declared his greatness and his glory, here's what this man who starts with why God ends. Listen to the words as I read them to you. What a journey he's made. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines and though the produce of the olives fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. And to make clear that this isn't just a private declaration, the book ends with this, to the leader with stringed instruments. This is a song to be sung by the questioning and the doubtful and the fearful. That whatever happens in our lives, we can ultimately trust God. Whatever goes on around us, when circumstances point away from him, he is still there. When everything seems to be going wrong, he is still there. This book, over the history of the people of Israel and of the church, has been used powerfully by God for those that are asking profound questions. It doesn't matter whether that profound question is, why is God letting me go through sickness? Or why is God letting his church wither? Or why does a nation seem to pursue wickedness? Or why is the church being persecuted? Or why, 
And I'm not sure it's 300 or 250 Christians that were killed in Sri Lanka, but why were 250 people killed in Sri Lanka by terrorist bombs? A book like this doesn't give the answers that you might want, but it does give the answers that you need. That God sees everything, that he knows everything, that he hasn't and never will abandon his people. And in the end, we have to make a choice of whether we will trust him or not. And we will bring our questions and our uncertainties and our anxieties and our fears before him. And there are safe, he is a safe place for them to be left. In the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish people faced a great deal of political and uh, spiritual uncertainty. The Romans came and overrun them and they were uh, controlled and there were terrible things done in the temple in Jerusalem. A series of documents that were found in 1947 relating back to that time are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in a, in a community called Qumran, uh, or the Essene community in, uh, near Megiddo in, in um, Israel. And some of those scrolls contained two sets of commentaries on the book of Habakkuk. When Israel faced uncertainty politically, when it faced uncertainty spiritually, when it faced uncertainty socially, it checked Habakkuk. It read this book again. I would suggest to you that Northern Ireland is facing an uncertain future. That the United Kingdom is facing an uncertain future. That the Republic of Ireland is facing an uncertain future. That Europe is facing an uncertain future. And that God's people could do better than return to this book. That this is a, a place that will give us answers. Maybe not the answers that we want, but the answers that we need. About how we can live faithfully and what it means to trust over the next few weeks, we are going to look at where God is when things are falling apart. Next week, by looking at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 11. The week after that, we're going to ask and explore the question, why does God let people away with sin? The week after that, we're going to ask the question or explore the reality that God will have the last word. That he sees all things and he will put all things right. Then we will look at God having uh, the power to change and transform lives by his grace and his mercy. And lastly, we will look at Habakkuk's declaration of trust amidst the uncertainty of life. I pray that God will use it over the next few weeks, but I want to just make a few remarks now in the hope that they may minister into your heart today. And I have a profound sense that the Holy Spirit wants to do something in this meeting I'm not going to say too much about the text other than what I've already said to set the context of it and invite you to come prayerfully to this journey with me. But I want you to note a couple of things. In chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk asks the question, How long? How long, O Lord? We'll explore this more deeply next week. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? In other words, Habakkuk, his initial complaint to God is, why aren't you doing something for me? Immediately followed by, and why aren't you doing something to stop them? How many of us ask that question? 
Why aren't you doing something for me? That's an honest question of faith. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to run away from. It's not something to be ashamed by. Christian faith isn't the absence of doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. If you, before you come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, are in a place of unbelief, and when you come face to face with God Almighty through Jesus Christ, either when you die or when Christ returns, you come to a place where faith is no longer necessary because you will have sight, then the road that you walk is a walk of faith and doubt. Asking questions, hearing answers, stumbling and falling and getting up again. When people come to me and they say to me, I have so many questions about God. I'm, I'm just uncertain. I, I, I don't think I believe in him anymore. I, my immediate answer, and I want you to hear this carefully because it is a profoundly important answer, is the fact you're asking the question proves that you still believe in him. What you're trying to do is work out what you believe about him. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Have you not asked that about some of the families in our church that have gone through pain and heartbreak? About Joel Brown's family, about Diana McConnell's family, about Mick Mines's family, about Pauline Mooney, about um, a whole range of people, about Thomas Dixon's family that have gone through loss after loss? How long, oh Lord? How long are you going to let this continue? Why does it keep happening again and again? Is there no one in your life that you've ever looked at and thought, how come they seem to end up with the bad end of the stick all the time? It's an honest question of faith. It's not a declaration of um, unbelief. It's a declaration saying, God, help me. Maybe you've been living with a debilitating illness. Maybe you've looked at the political system in Northern Ireland and, and thought, for goodness sake, two and a half years and they're still not round the table. How long, O oh Lord? Or Brexit, let's not even have that conversation. <laughs> How long, O oh Lord? These are the honest questions of a man called Habakkuk who somehow represents, and I don't want you to misunderstand this, but he represents the godly in Judah. He represents the women and the men that are doing their bottom dollar best to serve God. And when they look around them, they see a group of people in Judah that are ignoring God and getting away with it. The equivalent would be, you are trying to serve God. You're not perfect. You might think you are, but you're really not. And you look around you and you see people that you know are doing things that are deeply wrong, morally, ethically, spiritually, and theologically. And you ask, how come they're getting away with it? All of us have such questions. And he doesn't only really ask how long in verse two. In verse three, he says, why? And he looks at injustice and he looks at wrongdoing and he says, Lord, why do you tolerate it? God's response in verse six is to, look, to tell Habakkuk to look at what he's, God is doing. And God says to him, I'm raising up a, a, a people that will deal with this. They're called the Chaldeans. Again, we'll unpack it more fully next week. But Habakkuk isn't content with that answer. So as I said a moment or two ago in verses 12 and 13, he says, well, that's not right. You can't use people that are more unrighteous than us to judge us. What are you, what, 
That's not fair. And God fundamentally says to him, I know what I'm doing. How many times have you prayed and then given God the answer? <laughs> my mum and dad, my dad, my mum became a Christian in 2012. I prayed for her for nearly 20 years. Uh, in fact, 20, yeah, more than 20 years, I, two, two, 26 years, I'm not very good at mathematics, from 1986. I used to pray, Lord, will you save my mum? Would you send her to that church and would you let that person be preaching and would you let this person welcome them on the door and can I be there when it happens? <laughs> Anybody ever pray prayers like that? And um, I, I had all kinds of ways of telling God how to answer my prayer and God had the right to say, no, I'll do something my way. In 2012, the church that we were leading was running a, an Olympics outreach. It was an enormous thing. We had 350 volunteers came from America to help us. It was the biggest influx of Americans into our village since the Second World War. <laughs> Honestly, it was. And they all had our red t-shirts that said, run the race, and we put them everywhere. Matt, you'd never seen as many Americans in this little village. It was ridiculous. And uh, about a month before it, my darling wife, said to me, I think your mum should come for the Run the Race Outreach. And I said, Debbie, that would be a disaster. She said, I think she should come. I said, I'm never going to see her. We've got T's and we've got MP's and we've got councils. We had a concert to begin it that had 7,000 people come to it and a concert at the end of it that had about 8,000 people come to it. We had holiday clubs. I mean, it was just non-stop for two weeks. Everybody would was exhausted for a whole term afterwards in church. I said, I'm just never going to see her. And Debbie said, I still think she should come. And I said, well, you're going to have to look after her. Because <laughs> I'm not going to be around. So she came. And during those three weeks, she became a Christian. Amen. Debbie was right again. <laughs> she went to hear a testimony in a tent of two women. One was the director of Vogue. She hated it. She said, I cannot be doing listening to this woman. And the other was a young girl who'd been a drug addict and an alcoholic and had nothing and had come to faith. And my son, one of my sons, the youngest son, just to keep the record straight for those of you that think it's the other way around, whose name is Benjamin, was pulling, pushing my mum back in her chair across the common and uh, took her into the house and he said, now granny, you know we love you. She said, yes. He had given her his baseball cap. An 83-year-old woman with a baseball cap on was really cool. She said, he said, she said, yes. He said, well, I don't want you to go to a lost eternity. I want you to come to heaven. Are you ready to give your life to Jesus Christ? And my mum said, yes, I am. And uh, Benjamin said, just wait a minute. <laughs> and he phoned me. And I was on the common doing something. He said, Dad, I think you need to come home. And I said, why? He said, because Granny wants to become a Christian and I think you should lead her to Jesus. You've never seen anybody run so quick. <laughs> God had a way of answering that prayer and it wasn't the way I wanted. I could recount countless stories of God doing that. 
heartbreaks in our lives that we wanted God to take away and he didn't take away and it only then became clear later that he'd used the heartbreak to minister into somebody in my family or to say something to somebody else and we wouldn't have chosen it if we had to go through it again we still wouldn't choose it because we're not God and our voices like yours when we stood at gravesides or hurt doctors or had to deal with diagnoses or work out finances or get bills and think oh my goodness what are we going to do about that My voice like yours has said, why, Lord? How long is this going to go on? Is this ever going to come to an end? Why can't this stop? And God answers, but he doesn't always answer the way we want. But he is listening. And underneath all of these questions for Habakkuk and us are more profound and important questions. Are you God who you say you are? Do you really love me? Are you really committed to me? When my life doesn't make sense, are you going to make sense of it for me? The rest is all window dressing. Every Christian I have ever met has had such profound questions. If you haven't, then you will. Because there's a journey in faith where you must go through a season like this or several And out of the other side of it, if you will let God carry you, you will emerge with a simpler, purer, stronger faith. Because we do not live our lives in the questions, we live our lives in the bosom of the answer. And he says to Malcolm Duncan, come with all of your questions and I'll wrap my arms around you. And when you can't, when you've run out of anger, when you've run out of Impatience when you've run out of resentment, when you've run out of genuine frustration, I'll still be holding you. And then I will be able to do something for you. Then I'll be able to help you. It's not wrong to ask such profound questions. It's not the wrong thing. Habakkuk's cry is, God, where are you? Why haven't you done something? And God's answer to Habakkuk is, I haven't finished yet. And that's why when you get to his prayer in chapter 3, which we'll explore towards the end of this series, you have this profoundly moving cry. Oh Lord, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. In other words, he's looking to God, having had this argument with them and saying, oh God, will you, will you come and meet with me? Which of us hasn't prayed that? Who are part of this church family or online for Joel? Which of us hasn't explored the depths of questions about things like this for Susan Miles or for many others in our congregation and said, oh God, will you revive your work? Will you do something? I tell you, from the bottom of my heart, without embarrassment, without anxiety, without the, an ounce of concern, what do you think of me? Until there is no breath in my body, when I am looking after our entrusted with the the souls and the lives of men and women by Almighty God, and they are going through heartbreak and struggle, I will say, until I die, Lord, do something. Lord, breathe into that situation. Lord, bring hope into that situation. Bring grace, bring courage, bring faith, bring something that will keep them going. Not determining what it should be, but I will not stop asking. So this morning, 
I invite you to make this journey with me over the next few weeks. To let your cry be to God, whatever it needs to be. God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Help me understand. Lead me through. Take me by the hand. Do something in my family. Do something in my community. God is big enough and beautiful enough to take those prayers. And if he answers you in unexpected ways, if he does things that you weren't looking for, don't dismiss them as not him. In chapter three, Habakkuk's cry at the beginning is a prayer. It's what it's described as, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. According to Shigionoth, it's a tune. It's written as a poem. This little book, we'll look at it in the next few weeks, is full of beautiful language. But in the first couple of verses of chapter three, he cries out to God. Then in verses three to 15, he has a profound revelation of God's power. In answer to his prayer, he says, look at what he's done. Look at how his glory has covered the heavens. Look at the way he moves. Look at the story of his people. Look at his grace and his mercy. Look at his power and his majesty. It's like a declaration of trust, but it's not enough. Listen to verse 16. Of chapter three, having made the, having, having prayed the prayer, having had the revelation, if you like, here's where it all hinges. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. He has an encounter with God. I hear and I see. I don't just understand. Something's shifted in him. He has had a personal encounter with Almighty God. And only after that can he say, even if the fig tree does not blossom and there be no fruit upon the vine and the oxen not be in the stall, even then I will praise you. Because in the end, he needs an encounter with the living God to bring him to a place of trust. I'm gonna say something to you. You know this is a Pentecostal church. If I preach to you for 50 years and the Holy Spirit is not resting on what I say and resting on you as you listen, it will achieve nothing. Every one of us, me included, to get through life needs not just to hear good preaching and you know how deeply and profoundly committed I am to that. We need an encounter with the living God. We need his power to be at work in our lives. We need his presence to be guiding us. The author of the book, the Spirit, needs to be alive in us, connecting what we read to what he is saying into our hearts and into our souls. You will not make it through Christianity with just intellectual assent. Because there'll be times that you don't understand And in the times when you don't understand, you need to make a choice to trust. Nor will you make it through the Christian life with emotions and feelings only because there will be times when you don't feel and you don't experience something, then you have to trust. Pentecostalism is built on the conviction that the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is available to every single believer that they might know who they are in God, that they might receive the gift of faith, 
that they might be given an assurance of their salvation, that they might be able to understand and apply scripture, that they might have a release of praise and thanksgiving in their hearts, that they might be receive and use gifts for the upbuilding of the kingdom. It's built around the reality that all Christians need an encounter with God. This is not a lectern and I am not a lecturer. This is a pulpit and I am a preacher. This is not a lecture hall and you do not worship in a university. This is a community of faith where we need one another. And we need the living, breathing power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that here this morning, there are men and women who are desperate and need an encounter with the living God. Whose profoundly personal and troubled questions have been breaking their hearts and nailing their feet to the floor. And you are caught in the why, how, when, why, how, when, why, how, when. And it's stealing your joy. And it's stealing your hope. And it's causing you to look in the wrong direction. And I'm asking you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to have the courage to say, in the midst of the why and the how and the when, come and meet me, living God. Come and reveal to me who you are. Come and say something into my spirit. One sentence, one thing. Do something that will give me courage to keep going. Some of you have come from churches where you have been broken by legalism. You have been devastated by liberalism. You've been upset by petty arguments that, that, that get in the way of this. A church is a community built around Jesus. Not built around a preacher or a leadership team or even a denomination. It's a community built around Jesus. Not a dead Jesus, but a living, breathing, present, active Jesus who comes in the power of his spirit to bring life and hope and grace.